Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R for an hour of science in the studio with me this morning, and I do mean in the studio physically. It's a bit disturbing. It's Chris KP. Good morning. Hello. Hello. It is good to be here in 3D Vivo form. (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, Dr. Lauren, sorry you have to put that with him. Uh, Do I have to sit next to his Vivo form all morning? (laughs) I I can put you in the other studio and we can hook you in. Better put him in vitro. Yeah. We could put him in the other studio and, and hook it. We could, anyway, we could do something if he, can, if he misbehaves, but we'll be okay. We've got these new Perspex screens, and they make me feel so much safer when I'm sitting there, Chris. Blowfish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, we have, uh, we have some big guests uh, coming on the show a little bit later. We're going to be talking about an illness called RSV, which you may not have heard of. You may have heard of. Um, we haven't talked about it on the show before. We'll also be talking about that massive Tonga volcanic eruption from a specialist from the University of Newcastle, and we will be doing our news segment in just a moment. But before we get to that, um, I've actually got someone on the line already because there is a trial that is very important uh, that we wanted to promote. And welcome to the program, Professor Adrian O'Neill, the co-director of the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University. Good morning, Adrian. Can you hear us? Good morning, Shane. I sure can. It's great to have you on the show briefly this morning. Now, you are working on a really interesting program at the moment. Tell us a bit about what you're doing with regards to mood and food and all good things making us feel better. Yeah, well, we know, Shane, that many Victorians have been doing it tough and particularly after two years of lockdowns and many of us actually experiencing the direct effects of COVID. So we're finding a lot of Victorians feeling quite sort of distressed or just a bit blur at the moment. And at the same time, mental health services seem to be really stretched with long waiting lists. Mm. So we've been, we've spent many years at Deacon's Food and Mood Centre researching the effectiveness of other treatment strategies like improving diet quality or exercising a bit more to uh, improve mental health. And now we're wanting to test whether this type of approach is as good as more traditional talk therapy as part of this research trial called CALM. Hmm. And so what does that mean in terms of um, people getting involved? Because you you were, I mean, we've got you on this morning because you're recruiting for this over the next week. What, What would happen if people get involved in the program? Yeah, so we're offering Victorians access to one of two programs. So the good news is if you're eligible, then you're guaranteed to receive care from a highly skilled health professional in the comfort of your own home via a video call. It's important to note that you don't get to pick which group you uh, are assigned yep. to because it's it's random, but essentially both programs are eight weeks long, six sessions over Zoom in a group 90 minutes long. So they're designed to be very convenient. The first is the lifestyle-based mental health care approach with dietitian and exercise physiologists. And the other is this talk therapy program run by two psychologists. So such an exciting opportunity for Victorians that we're really pleased to be able to to offer if you're eligible. Yeah, and look, Adrian, as you said, there are so many people at the moment who are stuck in long waiting lists and it's we don't hear about we hear about elective surgery all the time, but we don't hear much about those waiting lists for people seeking psychological services. So even if people um, are thinking about this at the moment and thinking maybe there's there's some things they want to explore, this might be a good starting point if you are on one of those long waiting lists so how do people find out information and work out whether they're um, able to apply yeah absolutely you can give us a call on 5227 3026 or you can email us at calm c-a-l-m at deacon.edu.au excellent well adrian if you tweet some of that information later i will retweet it around and hopefully if um people feel as though they want to take that up they can get in touch with you and and hopefully be eligible good luck with the trial thanks so much for joining us this morning and um hopefully we'll, we'll hear back from you once um once the program is finished and we'll see what the results are absolutely thanks for your time shane great Thanks. That was Professor Adrian O'Neill, co-director of the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University.
There we go. Uh, Great opportunity. Interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting stuff. I think it's not in the same bucket as some of the bullshit I saw from the, from the federal government earlier this week where they suggested hydration as a solution for anxiety. <laughs> um, I don't normally, you know, really go off at things, but you know where you can poke that um, yeah. because that is really quite insulting to a whole lot yeah. of people with very significant anxiety disorders. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. hydration, always good. But solution to anxiety, <laughs> I don't think so. Possibly not. Um, yeah, I've been drinking like a fish for three days and it hasn't helped me at all. <laughs> anyway, let's get into some news. Dr. Lauren, what have you got for us? Speaking of fish. Speaking of fish. Lovely segue. segue lovely segue. Well, I wanted to actually start off by apologising to anyone who has small children because you're now going to have that baby shark song in your head for the next <laughs> few minutes. <laughs> because <laughs> I, exactly. I wanted to talk baby sharks because uh, in New Zealand last week, they found one of um, the rarest types of actually not actually a shark, it's actually a fish, but it's called a ghost shark. And it's one of these fish that f- lives down in the twilight zone of the ocean. So it actually was found 1.2 kilom- kilometres below the surface of the sea. And um, it's this beautiful thing. So we've put the photo up on Twitter because it's such a strange looking creature, but it was 10 centimetres long. And they think that the ghost shark had just been born because it actually oh. had a stomach full of yolk and it's still they could see where the umbil- umbilical cord had been. Mm. So oh, they, wow. they think it was literally a new born ghost shark so these can grow to about 1.5 meters in length but this one was only 10 centimeters so when they pulled it up it apparently fit very nicely into the researchers hands but the reason this is very cool is because obviously we don't see these very often Mm. they're they're so far below Mm. the ocean that it's really rare to see them at all let alone to see one that is so young and um, in really obviously perfect condition one of the really cool things with these particular ghost sharks leads itself to many, many jokes. So their genitalia is actually on their head. (laughs) Cue uh, comment from Chris KP. (laughs) Hashtag. Uh, I can't say it on air, I don't think, although I wish I could. That's so good. That's so good. All the listeners have it in their head. But, yeah, so so really strange-looking thing because it's got that on its head. It's also got these spikes on the side of its head as well, which it can use to sort of grab on to the female. It's a... that's pretty intense. It's a very intense look. It seems thing. very authentic, doesn't it? It's like you know exactly what I'm on about. There's no <laughs> secrets here. I'm not hiding anything. It's right here in my head. You got my grabbers. <laughs> you got my grabbers. You know how I feel about things. Beware of hugs. <laughs> That's it. That's, That's great. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and, yeah. But not actually a shark. Not a shark. So they diverged from actual sharks about 400 mm. million years ago. And so they are actually a fish. But mm. um, obviously they look well, as close to a, a shark could be are for they, one of these twilight zone are they creatures. bony? They, they've got cartilage rather okay. than bone, which so is like why. A shark. Yep, exactly. Yes. Yes. That's why they're called ghost sharks, but okay. they are and not actually a shark. Yeah. Okay, and not because they haunt people. No, that's it. That's it. Yep. Although it is a, it's a pretty freaky looking thing. I mean, you, if you saw one, it, yeah, ghost shark is quite a appropriate name in terms of. Interesting the, point that. Why aren't there more stories about animal ghosts? Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, there we go. I'll work maybe on that. animals aren't quite as stupid as humans are. <laughs> well, may- maybe. Let's it just be say. Part of it. <laughs> think it's a reasonable saying. assertion. I'm just saying. Um, but it's good to hear a good shark story because yeah. you know, sharks agree. are being complimented in the media again. Look, there's you know been a tragedy over the last week, yeah. which is which is terrible. Yes, yes. But you know, sharks are endangered, and mm. you know, I, you know what I wish we had. And I know this doesn't quite work, but whenever they put up a picture of a great white mm. in the media. Mm. Have you noticed it always has bits of flesh sort of hanging off it, bits of fish and yes. stuff? Like yeah. it's just yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure you can have a smiling photo of a great white yeah. because that yeah. kind of looks equally terrifying. But I'd like one that was more sort of, you yeah, know. Maybe, maybe, a, maybe a, a mother. Well, um, what is young. The, yeah. yeah, what's the yeah. equivalent of that polar bear shot where it's kind of lifting the little baby polar bear off the ice? You yes. know, like what's the equivalent for that for a shark? <laughs> I, I feel like we've got a few steps in the narrative first yeah. just to get people past. But I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I think you're right. Just, there uh, is, yeah. We need to do some PR work for yes, sharks because they're endangered, top of the food chain, and, and they will cause a lot of problems for us if they that's, disappear. That's exactly. what I don't get. They don't realise the things you think are cute, they need the things that maybe you don't exactly. think are cute. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, Chris KP, over to you. Um, I wanted to talk uh, Venus flytraps, but not for the obvious reason, I suppose, which is that they eat stuff and they're kind of cool and snappy in a sort of plant goth way, Um, but because they're useful. So here's the thing, right? If you trigger the number of hairs inside the Venus flytrap trap, firstly, they can count. They know how many hairs you've touched and in what period of time. So, just pause a moment, take that on. They're counting. Yep, that's a known thing. But if you trigger enough of them in the right places at the right frequency, they go, oh, there's something there, and they close up really quite quickly as well, Um, which means that there's some sort of stimulus and response in a a movement way that we're not – 
we don't see commonly amongst plants, I guess. Um, and so there's a bunch of scientists studying this idea and wondering, well, if the thing that makes them close in response to stimuli is electrical signals, just like us. Now, they don't have a nervous system like us, but if you like, the chemistry is kind of similar-ish, or at least it seems to be. So what these people found is that if you put a Venus flytrap um, in a, an ether environment, and ether is a, a very old anaesthetic that we don't think is used commonly anymore, but if you put them in that environment, then in fact they can be affected just like we would be by being in that environment. You can anaesthetize a Venus flytrap. It gets weirder. So when you trigger the, the hairs on the Venus flytrap, um, it re- they release a, um, a calcium molecule, which basically is the thing that goes, hey, close now. That's the, that's mm. the, the carrying signal. When they're in an ether environment, that is still released. So that doesn't stop that, mm. but it doesn't go anywhere. So it doesn't stimulate the actual movement, which makes you go, okay, so it's not stopping the stimulus, it's stopping the response, mm. if you like. Uh, so they, they've, they've worked that out, which is, I think, freaky enough in itself, but it goes slightly further than that. And this is where the story is, you know, the end of, I think, season one. The, 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 the serious molecule, if you like, um, is a glutamate receptor. That's the thing that actually makes the movement start to happen. And we've got that too. So animals have a similar kind of um, signaling mechanism, if you like. The question is, can we use Venus flytraps to study what that is? And the answer is very possibly. So we look; it looks like they've got a very similar bit of chemistry, even though their biology is very different. And, yeah, you can anesthetize them if you need to. And it, presumably, because I've always thought about this, if I put my finger in a bit, <laughs> like, does that trigger that process i mean there is is it going to be a specific type of interaction it, it needs to be a particular type of stimulus so mm. if you stick and i've done this as a kid i did that so yeah, my finger i'm like it's not doing anything it's broken plant's broken it's still under warranty but, it, but yeah. if you learn what the stimulus is and the secret is make your finger move like a fly that's the basic but yeah but you, yeah. There, there is essentially for want of a better phrase there's an algorithm like you can go in you can trigger the right you know amount of hairs in the right frequency of time and you can make it work huh. Interesting stuff. Well, um, we're going to take a break in a moment uh, before we get our first guest on. We're going to be talking about uh, the big Tonga volcanic oh, cool. eruption which is just just amazing but have you have you two seen the latest data coming out of the web telescope which is now in position at lagrange point two well beyond the moon and it's starting to send back its little pieces of data from each one of its mirrors and they're all functional they're all functional. that's pretty exciting so, it is amazing yeah it really isn't it is. yeah they got a, they got a line i mean you know lauren's into optometry you know, optometrist sort of person so <laughs> you know it's like having 18 eyes yeah. 18 i think it's 18 18 eyes that all have slightly different you, prescriptions yeah. do you, do you is, that a, is that is that a point of stimulus for your for your team to be able to say they got this thing right in this in space okay yeah. there's no excuses here <laughs> we can do it here now people I yeah, like yeah, that. yeah 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 well, it's my talk yeah needs a <laughs> Needs an optometrist to tune in, but but all of those mirrors are functional. Cool. Um, the detectors are functional. They even managed to take a little selfie of itself with its own camera, which is cool. Oh, that's cool. Um, but when you look at so at the moment, it's pointing at a single star, and you can see the reflection of that star of all eighteen of the mirrors. So you see eighteen little spots, all of slightly different yeah. distortion. You know, some are a little yeah. in focus, some are, and so they've just got to line them all up now, so they all look perfect, and then they can start doing imaging, which is all happening over months. You know, it's a slow process. Yeah, that's insane. But though. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. So, anyway, cool. Um, sorry, folks, I geek out a bit over the the web telescope. It's pretty exciting. Well, we've been talking about Hubble for thirty years. Yes, and we still are because it's still working. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have more to talk about. We'll be back uh, after some tunes. Uh, we will be speaking to Associate Professor Hannah Power from the University of Newcastle. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Oh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R. On the line with me now is Associate Professor Hannah Power. She is from the School of Environmental and Life Sciences in the College of Engineering, Science and Environment at the University of Newcastle. Good morning, Hannah. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. I'm well. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on. Now, we connected a little while back over Twitter shortly after the massive volcanic eruption that happened near Tonga. Um, of those, you know, formerly two small little volcanic islands that ended up being one, and I'm not sure if they're still one or they're back to being two or whatever. But um, I mean, this uh, just reflecting from your experience over the years. I mean, this must have been one of the largest eruptions you've come across of this type that sort of had reverberations around the world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's certainly the largest eruption we've had in several decades. 
Um, and from the point of view of the tsunami that it generated, we mm. saw the largest waves recorded in Australia since 1960. So it was a really wow. significant event. Yeah. And w- when you say that the largest, I mean, what what sort of wave height, I suppose, are we talking about there? Or, or how do you define largest first? I mean, what does that mean? Yeah. So there are a few different ways we can define wave height. We can define wave height from the the trough of the wave, the lowest point, up to the crest, the highest point. Mm-hmm. Often those tsunami waves are described as just the height of the crest relative to the mean or average water level. Um, and in places like the Gold Coast, we saw waves of over 80 centimetres. In Norfolk Island, we saw waves over a metre. And it's really important to remember that a tsunami wave is really different from the wave that we get along the coast every day. So mm. an 80 centimetre wave is is nothing really to be sniffed at in yep. terms of everyday waves, you know. That's smaller than what we get on average along the part of the New South Wales coast where I am right now. But in terms of a tsunami wave, they can really cause quite a lot of damage and have a significant impact because they have such long periods. The time mm. between each wave is so great. Right, so you're kind of stuck in the peak of the wave permanently for sometimes minutes yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah now it it was interesting because one of the things that we saw when this volcanic eruption occurred which is just amazing sort of good fortune in a sense in terms of the science and not the people on the ground but in terms of the science Mm -hmm. is there were a number of satellites that were able to capture what was going on from space and we saw this incredible shockwave which was, I, I suppose, an atmospheric shockwave that sort of really reverberated around the world, I, as I recall, a couple of times, actually. I mean, the part we saw visually um, seemed to only go around once. But how does the speed of that compared to the, compared to the speed of the tsunami that affected the coastline of Australia? I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming that the atmospheric one arrived first, but how does that work? Yeah, so when the volcano erupted, it created a pressure wave Uh, that travelled around the world. It was recorded multiple times, as you say. It went a couple of times around the world. And it was big enough for people who had little backyard weather station systems to pick it up. It was significant enough for that. That travels much faster, though, than the tsunami wave. So I think people picked that up sort of late in the afternoon on Saturday when Mm. the eruption happened about... It was about 3 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time on the Saturday, and people picked that up a couple of hours later in their weather stations... And then the tsunami wave started to arrive on the sort of mainland Australian shore about, I think it was about 8 p.m. Right. Yep. Interesting. I remember on that Saturday, I was I was sitting there uh, watching television with my wife that afternoon and I opened our sliding door. I did some calculations and I figured it should be coming past somewhere between five and six o'clock and they were my real rough back of the envelope stuff. And unfortunately, I live relatively close to the airport. So every time a plane flew over, I was, uh, uh, no, no, 747, um, you know, it was a, a lot of false positives. So, I, I, you know, we didn't sort of hear anything, but certainly something of that magnitude um, causes such an enormous effect around the whole globe, which when you think of global effects, there aren't many things that have global effects that we see on such a short time frame. In terms of the tsunami, though, I mean, how much of the sort of cause there was because, and this is one of the things a lot of people don't um, are not aware of, is that the volcano was actually under the water predominantly. So the eruption was underneath the water, not above the land sort of line where we normally see them. How, how much did that impact the sort of just that that huge nature of what what was in place? Yes, yeah, so for tsunami generated by volcanic eruptions, the volcano has to be below the water for mm. the most part. They can be caused by uh, volcanic eruptions where the volcano is above the water, and that's often if you have some of the volcano if there's a large landslide and that landslide creates material that falls into the water, which generates a wave. Um, But the Tongan event, as you said, the volcano erupted underwater. And so what would have happened was the whole of the water column above the volcano would have moved. And then that creates a wave that radiates outwards. Um, If you were looking at it from above, it would the wave pattern would look a little bit like if you dropped a pebble into a pond, that sort of wave radiating Mm -hmm. outwards from a, a central point. But of course, the mechanism is the is the opposite. Instead of the pebble being dropped down, the volcano erupted upwards. Yeah, interesting. And when when this sort of wave hits something like the Australian coastline, how how does that affect us based on the type of coastline we have? Because you know we've seen 
some images over the last few decades of certain areas around the world where when the tsunami hits, it is quite extraordinary. And I think, was it in Peru where a few fishermen lost their lives as a result of this one particular tsunami? So mm-hmm. uh, obviously how, the, how that wave impacts depends very much on our coastline. What is our coastline like? Is it, is it sort of, you know, relatively tsunami-proof because of its shape and structure? Or are we kind of, do we have a lot of areas that are really problematic and, and concerning? What, you know, how, how do we stack up? Well, our coastline varies a lot. We have a lot of open coast beaches. You know, that's very much embedded in the sort of psyche of our nation. But we also have a lot of estuaries. And Mm. estuaries can be really problematic in terms of tsunami because they can funnel and focus the tsunami energy. The other factor that affects whether or not a, a tsunami has a really big impact on one particular part of the coast or the other, and you mentioned Peru, and we definitely saw impacts from the Tongan tsunami all around the whole of the Pacific, is which way the majority of the energy goes when that eruption happens. And so from in terms of the impacts, we certainly saw very big impacts on South America, which is further away from Tonga than we are here. But if the wave is primarily propagating that way, then that's why you'll get more impacts over there than the impacts we saw here in Australia. Right. Interesting. Yep. Now, um, well, let's let's move away for a moment from um, Tonga. But I, I, you know, it must be an amazing thing as someone with expertise in this area when something so rare like this occurs and you see these effects around around the world. It just that sort of um, you know just immense amount of data to look at and understand what's going on is incredible. But you normally work on beaches and, and how waves affect. Um, Um, beaches and so forth. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing there. So, yeah, as you say, a lot of my work revolves around beaches and I try to understand a few different things about how beaches work. One is how waves behave. So I'm interested in what happens after waves break, how that uh, varies from beach to beach and how that creates smaller, more localised hazards on our beaches. So things like really extreme wave run-up, so that highest point that the wave gets to as it Mm. runs up the beach. And understanding processes like that is really important for predicting things like dune erosion during big storms. It's important for managing our coast, understanding should we put a building here or should we site it further away from the coastline. Um, And then I also do work uh, not just on beaches but on estuaries, trying to understand how sea level will change what happens in our estuaries, particularly in terms of our tides. So we know that as sea level rises, the water levels are going to get higher But one of the things that complicates things in estuaries is that the tidal range in estuaries is not generally the same as it is in the ocean. So that's the difference between the high and the low tide. And as the sea level rises, we anticipate that those tidal ranges will also change. So I also do some work in that space as well. Yeah, very cool. And what what does the work look like in terms of the data collection these days? Is it all kind of fancy satellite data coming in, or are you still, you know, putting sensor boys out and measuring wave height, you know, in you know a number of locations, or do you just get a whole of the surfers who are carrying their phones and say, you know, give us your GPS data? What, what does it look like today? <laughs> Yeah, it really varies. So we do everything from using satellite data to um, collect uh, data on depth. So we can use the fact that light penetrates the ocean water at different rates and that green and blue wavelengths penetrate and reflect back at different rates. And we can use that to work out depth. We put instruments in the water. So we put things in long term, so stuff that stays out for days to weeks. We also put stuff in that might only stay out for half a day. And, you know, we're often out on the beach in the surf putting our gear out or in the estuary putting our equipment out. And, you know, like I'm sure a lot of other field scientists would uh, see, it's a lot of going to Bunnings and finding various bits and pieces of stuff and then using it for not their intended purpose. (laughs) I love that. I think uh, most of the scientists have done that over the years at some point or another. Look, Hannah, it's it's been great talking to you. I hope you never get the opportunity to look into one of these big volcanic eruptions again. I think that's fair to say, but I think it's amazing that you've had this this insight into the way um, the world works on such a a massive and enormous scale. And I I, I think one of the visuals I will never get out of my head is that, that shockwave propagating out from that volcanic eruption you know around the world which is something that 
you know we only see in sci-fi films and and to actually have been able to to view that with that satellite imagery is incredible good luck with your ongoing work and um looking forward to learning more and more as things go on with regards to our coastlines and the way waves affect them especially with the changing climate so thanks so much hannah thanks for having me shane Folks, that was Associate Professor Hannah Power from the College of Engineering, Science and Environment at the University of Newcastle. We're going to take a short break for some station announcements. And when we come back, we will be speaking with a specialist from the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. It's Einstein and Gogo time. We're zipping between calls here. We've just gone from the University of Newcastle. Now we're down at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. And uh, I didn't realise this would be the case, actually, but live at the actual hospital is Professor Sarah McNabb. She's the Director of General Medicine at the RCH. Good morning, Sarah. How are you going? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. Don't you get a Sunday off? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, not today, unfortunately. Oh, I thought all this health service workers working so hard was all just some PR myth you guys were putting out, but you're actually there. You're at the hospital today. <laughs> yeah, it's all a media blow up. You know, we just close the hospitals most Sundays. Uh, don't worry. Look, the teachers are doing the same thing. You know, all these people who are working hard for us, you know, they're just making it up. Um, I think uh, I remember back in the days of the uh, Brisbane floods. And someone, you know, called out, you know, find me a hydrologist. And for a short period, hydrologists were rock stars. People, everyone, everyone wanted to talk to one. Uh, but you guys have been in that rock star period of um, of health service workers now for over two years, nonstop. As it, it must be, you, you look well, but you must be worn out. Oh, look! I think we're we are pretty worn out. It, it has certainly been been a different few years. Fortunately for paediatrics, we haven't been anywhere near as hardly done by as our adult colleagues. Yep. Um, but it has been busy. There is there is no doubt about that. Do you have a lot of applications coming in for people to move from adult to paediatrics? Is that, is that <laughs> we'll take them. We'll we'll take them so long as they're happy and bubbly and you know love blowing bubbles and entertaining kids. Then, well, bubbles then are we'd good. love to see them. Yeah, look, bubbles bubbles are a great way of determining airflow in environments. I say, take a bubble machine with you wherever you go, and if they all just linger. Bad news. Uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah, bubble machines, okay. We're not so keen on blowing bubbles in the Absolutely. middle of the pandemic. That's, yeah. but, uh, That's what I yeah. said, bubble, bubble machine, machine bubble machine. Um, now, actually, forgetting the pandemic for a moment, because what, what um, we wanted to talk about today was this other illness called RSV, which I, I think some of our listeners will have heard about it. Some of, uh, some of our listeners, unfortunately, will have had some experience with. But give us a quick rundown. What is RSV? We, we, we don't hear about this much, but it's apparently quite a sizable problem. It is a sizable problem. It's really, you know, what we would call our bread and butter in paediatrics because it's that common. It's a, It stands for respiratory syncytial virus, and don't make me say that fast okay. too many times. That's why we call it RSV, but it's um, an extremely common respiratory virus that predominantly affects children. It can affect people of all ages, uh, but, but most of uh, the people who need to be hospitalised with RSV will be children under the age of five. Mm. And, I mean, what, what sort of scenario are we talking about here? Because, you know, we, we hear about the flu all the time. We hear about gastro outbreaks at schools, you know, that we don't want to hear about those. But, you know, we won't talk about those today because it's breakfast time. But we, we do hear about all these other things. But I have to say, you know, in 30 years of doing this show, I don't think um, until we interacted and so forth, and I've seen a few things on Twitter and so forth lately, there just really isn't a lot spoken about RSV. No, and, and I'm not exactly sure why that is. I suspect it's one of those really, really common viruses that people haven't heard of. They just, you know, it, it just affects them and they don't even know potentially that they've had it. So in most people, RSV will be relatively mild. It, it'll present like a typical cold. It's one of the viruses that can cause mm -hmm. a cold. So runny nose, you know, cough, headache, fever, those sorts of things. But um, in particularly in younger children, at times it can be more severe. So one of the most common illnesses that it can cause in, in babies particularly is an illness called bronchiolitis. So that's an illness where you have some swelling and narrowing and inflammation of the lower part of your airways. Similar in a way to asthma, but, but different in terms of how we treat it and, and what we can do about it than asthma. But this virus is so, so common that in under six months, you know, in babies that are under six months, 
uh, 2% of children of babies under six months will be admitted to hospital with RSV at some point. Mm. That's not 2% of children who get RSV. Mm. That's 2% of, of babies. Total. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's quite phenomenal. But again, it's something that, um, again, is so common, I, su- I suppose, and that we've lived with for so long that people may be well unaware of it. Yeah. So when you say 2% of them end up in, in hospital, you say, in, in, in yeah. hospital. So, I mean, yeah. what, what percentage of them actually get it? What percentage of kids under six months will encounter this virus? Yeah, so we think that we think most children, I mean, I would like to say all children, but we never say all mm. in medicine. Yep. We think that most children will be exposed to it before the age of five and, and most of that will be before the age of two. So we think it's it's one of those really common ones. So when you've got a child at childcare and they get one of the childcare bugs, at some point that is likely to be RSV. Right. Are there, are there ways of determining who it affects uh, more severely or is it just sort of luck of the draw like we're finding at the moment with a lot of other things? Yeah, it's a really good question. There's certainly um, research going on from some of my colleagues here at the hospital trying to identify why do some children get it so severely and other children not get it quite as severely. There are some typical risk factors which won't surprise you. Mm-hmm. So babies who have been born prematurely and may have some chronic lung disease, um, they are more likely to come to hospital. Children who have um, what we call neuromuscular conditions, that means that they can't breathe as as deeply um, or as strongly can sometimes be more it's more likely for them to come into hospital with any respiratory virus so so RSV is one of those so they're two of the typical reasons um, why children would be more likely to be admitted but actually most of the children we see in hospital are otherwise well um, who've had this nasty virus and have had to come in yep and what's the sort of average sort of stay you're getting from kids who do come in is it is it yeah. long or short yeah, average is about two to three days. RSV typically is worse on the third day. Um, and a lot of them will just come in and be observed and we don't need to do much. Um, but some of the treatments that we'll have to give us what we call supportive treatments. So we don't have a treatment that fixes it, that makes it shorter in duration. But we do have we do support children while their body essentially recovers. So for most children, that will be some oxygen and some fluids. Um, but obviously there are some that are sicker and we do have children every year who need to go to intensive care and have, um, you know, higher levels of therapy. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Now, with regards to, um, you know, as you said, there's there's no specific sort of way of preventing it at the moment. But in terms of vaccines, you know, we seem to be, we're rejecting vaccines at the moment. We've got so many of them floating around in society. It's almost out of control. Where, where are we with something for RSV? Is, is there any sort of progress? I mean, we've got flu vaccines. We've got things like what was it called? Relenza. We've got all sorts of drugs these days. Um, where do we stand with RSV? Yeah, so RSV, it had been slow going for a vaccine for a very long time, a huge setback a generation ago back in the 60s where they had a, a vaccine candidate that actually was an awful, tragic disaster and children did worse once they'd had the vaccine. And that set back RSV. No one wanted to touch RSV vaccines yep. for a long time yep. after that. But over the last decade, there's been huge progress and there are some really promising trials going on at the moment. One of the trickiest things for vaccinating about an illness, uh, vaccinating for an illness that mainly affects babies is that babies' immune systems are entirely their own little, they're, they're completely different to adult no. immune systems. And there are lots of things, as you know, that we, that we don't vaccinate for until children are a little bit older. Um, so the best candidates to protect, the best vaccine candidates to protect little babies will probably be vaccines that are given in pregnancy. So similar to giving whooping cough vaccine in pregnancy to protect little babies, we'll probably end up with something like that for RSV and there are some really promising trials going on. We'll be excited. We'll hopefully get to twiddle our thumbs a little bit more in the hospital because, you know, again, RSV is a lot of our workload. Yeah, it's interesting. And in terms of the the way in which you do treatment and so forth, I mean, obviously, paediatrics is not just at the Royal Children's, it's it's distributed, especially in regional centres and so forth. Is it easy 
to sort of work out who has RSV when you're away from the major hospitals? Because I know, you know, one thing about babies is they unfortunately can't tell you much about how they're feeling. So how does yeah. that go in terms of diagnosis if you're, you know, a couple of hundred Ks away from, from the RCH or, or Monash, the Monash Equivalent Children's Hospital or, you know, or the Joan Kerner Centre? Is it the Joan Kerner Centre? Yeah, Joan Kerner yeah. and Contact, um, yeah. You know, if, if you're away from these major centres, how does, how does that play out in terms of diagnostics? That's a really excellent question, and the answer will probably surprise you and your listeners. We often don't test for it, even at RCH. Mm -hmm. So because we don't have a treatment for it um, and because we treat it the same way that we treat all of the other viruses that can cause illness in children, human metanumavirus, paraflu, influenza, um, we treat them all in the same way. So there's no benefit for the child for us to know that they have RSV. And as all parents know, because I think every parent around Australia has had to do a swab on their child at some point in the mm. last few years, we don't like to do that if we don't have to do that. So traditionally, we've said, well, we don't test for it because we don't, um, you know, we don't treat it. So we test for it enough that we know that it's around. Um, most winters when we do test for it, we have about a 30% positivity rate in children who have viral symptoms, so huge positivity rate. But if you've got a child who comes in with typical bronchiolitis, for example, there's absolutely no need to test for it. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Now, uh, as, as many people have become very rapidly aware over the last year, some viruses evolve quite, uh, quite rapidly. I think yeah. um, some people were probably aware years back, you know, when they were, why do I have to get the flu injection every year? And they'd get some of that information about the evolution of viruses. How does RSV sit in that game? Is it changing over time or is this, I mean, it, it's one of those viruses that doesn't seem to be, you know, too smart for its own good that it wipes itself out by killing too many people, too weak that it's not spreading so, you know, no one gets it. It's kind of right in that sweet spot of being around forever. Is it is it kind of optimised for that at the moment and not changing much or is it oh, it's, shifting? It's a fascinating question that I probably um, would need a microbiologist to come and help <laughs> me answer or a virologist to come and help me answer. But in general, um, it is something that you probably get some immunity from because again, it's it's just so common in younger children mm. and less common as you get older. It less commonly causes serious illness as you get older. It doesn't disappear. Um, so certainly, adults and the elderly can be affected, and it, it is responsible for for deaths in the elderly as well. Mm. But it doesn't seem to be similar to flu, where you could you know it changes and you get as bad of an episode the next yep. year. Now, there might be virologists out there thinking that's bonkers, that's not <laughs> correct. But in terms of what we see, it's worse when you first get it as a little e. Yeah. Now, and before I let you go, Sarah, you, you recently had your own bout like so many people have your family. I saw you, you tweeting a day before school, a whole lot of positive rat tests. First of all, congratulations on doing a rat test correctly. Not everyone can uh, claim that, I think, at the moment. Um, you're all well. You're all cleared. You're all back to normal. Yeah, thank you. Yes. So my my three boys all tested positive to COVID the night before going back to school on our um, asymptomatic preschool um, swabs, which was um, a bit of a surprise. Yeah. Uh, and actually, we all ended up getting it. My husband and I got COVID as well. Um, thankfully, my husband and I both triple vaxxed. We had it quite, we had symptoms, but they were pretty mild, which was, was good. And my three boys had all had their first vax three weeks before. I'm not sure if that was enough time to offer them protection, but two of them had no symptoms at all and one had very mild symptoms. So we got through really, really nicely, which is um, a big relief. Kids are back at school now and um, I'm clearly back at work and, and we've all done We've all been very fortunate. We've we've done very well. Yeah, and yeah. and just finally, how, how what's the mood at at the hospital? I mean, I'm, I'm hoping, as you said, that in paediatrics, it's a little more positive than it is at some of our hospitals at the moment, where things are really strung out. But you know, they're still yeah. adults, people with kids and families, and it's affecting all of us. I mean, how's the how's the hospital going overall? Yeah, look, I think it was really tough in mid-January. We had a lot of staff with COVID all furloughed because of COVID. We were all worried about school going back and the impact that would have on COVID rates. Thankfully, that's been okay. For me personally, at the moment, I'm genuinely worried about when RSV is going to come back. Mm. So one really interesting thing, and I know we're probably running short on time, but an interesting thing has been that um, all of those measures that we took, you know, the particularly border closures, locking down, mask, probably mask wearing, hand washing, really has changed RSV. We had 
very, usually it's a winter virus. Yep. We had very little COVID in the winter of 2020 and we had a huge spike, massive this time last year when everything was opened up again that put an enormous strain on our emergency department. They were mm. seeing 20% more patients each day than their previous busiest days. So we're a little worried about when and how so how severe, you know, so again, last winter we had no COVID again. We're in lockdown. Uh, no, sorry, no RSV, RSV again. Yep. We're in lockdown again, um, and so we're we're really waiting now to see when it will come back and, and how bad the next season's going to be. Yeah, well, look, hopefully some of the mitigations that we already have in place for COVID, you know, work for RSV as well, and in fact, probably and then yep. some. Um, no they one do. Near, they no do. is virulent, so you know that will hopefully be some good news. And you know, I really think in many regards it's taught us a lot about airflow conditions and air purity and just how much we have to think about that in our internal environments and how much more we should be doing just for our general health but also plays yeah. out into these spaces of RSV. Sarah thanks so much for, for chatting to us we'd love to talk to you again as things go on and, and see how things progress with the hospital and, and how you're going um, good to hear that you and family are well and thanks for the little um, sort of info session on RSV hopefully people are more aware of what this is and, and, and I think it's really interesting how you how you address it in, in a hospital context and you know the testing and things you do and don't do and, and why so Thanks for being a guest on Einstein the Go-Go today. Thank you very much for having me. Folks, that was Professor Sarah McNabb, the Director of General Medicine at the Royal Children's Hospital. Uh, we're going to take a short break for some station announcements, and then we'll be back in just a moment uh, with uh, Dr. Lauren teaching us something. I'm not sure what. Actually, she did tell me, but I'm old, so I forgot. There we go. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. It's Einstein and Gogo. It's an hour of science. You're 47 minutes in. If you made it this far, you might as well stick around because <laughs> Dr. Lauren's going to talk to us about uh, something to do with ethics. I know. I was going to say, I just made Chris KP groan <laughs> because I said I'm going to talk about no, it's ethics. It's not a, more a groan, just I'm frightened. I'm going to get, get found out. Yeah. You, <laughs> you've got a lot of skeletons in the uh, Chris KP closet. Oh, the closet's falling apart. Oh, it's, it's a very full closet. But. Um, <laughs> Well, I really just wanted to do a bit of a shout-out, actually. So, last week, the American Association for Advancement of Science, the AAS, which mm. um, many of you might know, it's the world's largest general scientific society, and they publish the science journals, which, you know, some of us may have heard of. How do you pronounce that? that oh, do you know? My, Is it I, ass? I, <laughs> That's what I've always said. Yeah. I'm not a member. <laughs> Correlation, not causation. That's it, that's it. You're not a member? If you joined, it would not be an arse anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but no, look, it's up. So they, they basically announce a whole series of awards each year. And there's one that they announce, which is the Award for Scientific Freedom and Responsibility. Mm-hmm. And it went to someone in our region. So I wanted to do a bit of a shout out. So it's gone out to someone called Dr. Ronald Jones, who's an obstetrician and gynecologist in New Zealand. And what the award is acknowledging is that he was a bit of a whistleblower on a a clinical trial that was run in New Zealand in the 60s to 80s. Some of you may have heard of it. It was called, I think, very downplaying it. It was called the unfortunate experiment, which as we talk more about it, you will probably agree is is really... Very downplaying it yep. was very unfortunate. So basically, this was a, a really horrible situation in New Zealand where there was a, a doctor called Professor Herbert Green who strongly believed that the precursor to cervical cancer, which is called cervical carcinoma in situ Mm -hmm. or CIS, he didn't believe that that actually led to cancer. And so every at that time, this was in the early 60s, most of science and medicine believed that it was the case, but it still hadn't been proven. So that's right. fine. But what actually happened is that Professor Green then started a clinical trial where he didn't tell women that they were in a trial. He didn't tell women that they had CIS and he didn't tell women that there were options for treatment. Whoa. The really scary thing is this trial then went on for 20 years. So it went from 1966 and then was finally stopped in 1987 after um, Dr. Jones uh, published this paper showing what was happening at the hospital. And so there was really horrible things. So if you're interested, it is quite a scary read. So this um, trial never got consent from any of these women, never told them that they had these conditions, never told them that there were treatments available at that time. And unfortunately, a lot of women died as a result because they went on to develop cancer. 
He also did some horrible things where he wanted to prove that these pre- precursor changes, would he thought they were just a biological uh, difference between people. So he actually was doing uh, basically pap smears on newborn babies to, to see if newborn girls also had these cells. But again, without consent from parents wow. and without you know anyone else being aware. So really horrific stuff. The good news here. So... It is a bit of a shocking story. The hospital administration let him do it. You know, there was one person that stood up in the 60s and said, I don't think this is right, and he was really shut shut down. And what the, the current um, and the, you know, the modern look on this is that there was a real hierarchical system in the hospital mm. and the juniors just weren't, weren't brave enough or weren't confident that they'd be heard, so they mm. just sort of kept kept to themselves. Can we describe my surprise face to listeners <laughs> hearing this? It's, yeah, very much not surprised. Yeah. yeah no, but look, we still see it now. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That's exactly it. And so, um, yeah, it, it honestly took a long time. And then this Dr. Jones, um, Dr. Ronald Jones, then in 1985 wrote a paper saying, and he, he was, you know, quite clever about it. He didn't name and shame. He just said, look, you know, we've been looking at these results and we're showing that a lot of these women are progressing to cancer. And in the end, there was a large inquest into it called the Cartwright Report, which found that there'd obviously been a number of issues with this trial, and it was shut down. Mm. So the good news is that that actually really changed things in New Zealand. So interestingly, since then, so in the, the, um, the subsequent 30 years, there's been no large medical issues in, uh, you know, or sort of any of these horrible situations in New Zealand, which is a good sign. But mm. as you said before, Dr. Shane, it unfortunately does still happen. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me the the power imbalances and struggles in medicine yeah. are so entrenched mm. and so problematic. And, and for me, they happen in two major areas. One is doctors to doctors or doctors to other healthcare professionals, which I think um, many people have seen. Yep. And, you know, there are things happening, I think, in many medical schools and so forth around the country at the moment to try and, you know, offset this mm-hmm. as best as possible and, and hopefully a new generation is coming through where that doesn't happen and to be fair not all doctors do that so you know we have to be mindful the second is the the doctor to patient power imbalance which mm-hmm. in many cases and in particular for women yep. can really offset good clinical care mm-hmm. um, because you know they don't listen um, and it's again not all doctors but yeah. it is it is something that's fairly widespread and problematic and when you hear stories like this mm. um, over decades Mm-mm. you think how is that possible so I'm interested then on, on that point when uh, dr. Jones published his paper mm. what was his position in the hierarchy mm. had, he, mm. had he waited and risen up to the point where he could go okay enough of this Mm-mm. Had he thought it was going to go away went what this is still happening mm. or was he actually still was there still a huge gap? And he's going, I can't take this anymore. This has got to get addressed. So that's an excellent question, Chris Cavey, because he was a newbie. So he actually came ah. from the UK. I was one and of those. Yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> um, but it's really interesting because there's a number of interviews with, with him, um, obviously, you know, not discussing these at the time. And he says, look, he really was shunned. You know, yep. so he wrote this paper. He actually, he and his co-authors sent a copy of that paper to everyone in the hospital. So all of the doctors, oh, wow. the hospital administration, you know, very pointedly saying this trial is happening here and this yeah. is what's happening and mm. nothing happened. So that paper was published in 1985 and then the Cartwright Report wasn't until 1987. So it was another two years mm. of women being untreated yep. and not understanding that they were in a clinical trial. Um, but he, yeah. Obviously, he made a decision, so he um, decided with his, I should say there were another two authors as well, they decided to go out on, on a limb and um, I really agree with that they should be rewarded for that. Absolutely. Mm. And, and just um, before you go on to the mm. next part, I mean, what, what's happened to this um, Dr. Evil, mm. as we'll call him yeah, for the rest yeah, of the show? exactly. So, look, he, he has passed away. So, there were... Uh, so, corporate- am, I, am I okay to say good? <laughs> I mean, you know, this sounds, I mean, it's terrible, yeah. but, but shit, you know, like this guy has caused yeah. many deaths presumably that's it and it's very interesting reading about him as a person as well because that that was where i immediately went to i'm like well how how can you think that's okay what are the drivers here exactly so so reading into him as a person it sounds like he he was very much that stereotypical hierarchical thought so he he was i am the professor and you will listen to me Hmm. um it was apparently not a very nice person to work with to his team as well Hmm. as with his patients um but they do there's definitely reports in 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 the okay again you know obviously this is all hearsay but in the media there were reports that you know he was really kind sometimes so i mean i hate to say 
say what it did there, but you know, yeah. the only bad point there is that he didn't get to um, you know face up to the music essentially yeah. on, on what what had been done there because it sounds like a a huge breach of ethics yep. for individual patients and. You know, the, the, the whole sort of do-no-harm scenario yes. there is just out the window. Mm. And you are directly mm. doing harm knowingly to very large numbers of women. But if, he, exactly. but if, he's, so, if he's so confident that he's right in this mm. particular case, yep. then he's not saying he's doing harm. Yep. Yeah. Sure, they're dying yes. and they're suffering. I get that, but yeah. that's not. But I'm right that's still. It. That's it. <laughs> no, it's so true. And one of the really interesting things that came from this Cartwright report was that they actually put most of the blame on the hospital administration. So they mm. said so. So the other thing to remember is back then they didn't have um, ethics committees. Yeah. So yeah. most research mm. that goes through now is through an ethics yeah. committee. So at this point, they actually just went to a hospital committee. But the report did come back and say, look, there was enough evidence that this yeah. was risky, and there's enough evidence that you know, even back then, we knew that people probably should know if they're in a clinical trial. Well, you, know? you definitely should know if things are being done to you and your baby oh, without your knowledge. Exactly. Um, but second, 20 years? Yes. Yeah. I mean, yes. is this guy just a real shit scientist and it took so long? Or, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. why so long with so many people? That's, that's the part I, I don't accept that. So and I think there are safeguards hospitals have to have in place. Yes, but That's an interesting point because that makes you wonder, in that 20-year period, was he publishing? Mm. Yeah, so that's it. That's it. Exactly. And what was he publishing? Yeah, yeah. Well, that actually is a really nice segue, actually, into the other one, which is probably well known, which was the Tuskegee syphilis study. So this one was in the US um, and another really horrible situation. So I think this one was about 500 men and they were all African-American um, in, in background and they had syphilis. And again, at the time when the trial started in 1932, there were no good treatments, but there were treatments mm -hmm. available mm -hmm. for syphilis. But the scientists decided that they wanted to see what would happen if you didn't treat syphilis. So again, oh. no consent, didn't tell the men that they were not, you know, that they wow. that there were options available for them. They told them that they were in a trial, but they told them they were in a study looking at bad blood, which, you know, in itself is... <laughs> what is that? Whatever that is. Exactly. Bad exactly. blood. Exactly. That's it. And they were told that they'd be in a study for it six goes months. bad if you leave it on the side of the road for a couple of hours. That's but, it. But, you know... Oh, my God. I know, yep. I know. So, so in 1932, they enrolled these men and they were told that they would be, you know, investigated for their bad blood for six months. Uh, uh -huh. So that study went for 40 years. Wow. And horrific numbers. So basically, um, over it was around about 130 people died from, from that, that from, from syphilis, so from something that yep. could have been treated. Within the, I think it was within the first five to ten years of that study, um, penicillin. Was, mm. was shown to wow. be an effective treatment yeah, yeah. for syphilis. Yeah. So these men could have been saved. Well, that's interesting because that's 40 years, mm. in fact, even 20 years, but 40 years, that's most, if not all, of whole careers. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. people would have come in yep. and out yep. of that and yep. that would have been their whole professional experience. Yep. Yes. This is what mm. you do. Exactly, exactly. And they were publishing. You know, this. So the, mm. I'm not 100% sure on how many papers came from the New Zealand study, but definitely for the Tuskegee study, there mm. were papers coming out. Um, but one of the most heartbreaking things for me from that particular study is that the children that yep. were born with congenital oh, wow. syphilis yeah, yeah, yeah. and, you know, and wives that contracted it from their yep. husbands. I mean, huge mm. Implications, mm. just because someone thought it was an interesting question. Yeah, well, and it does demonstrate that uh, you know the way in which people of color have been treated in this yeah. sense is you know forty years is actually not a very long time in terms of how long we've been you know screwing that group of people over. Exactly. And similarly mm. with the, the gender-based stuff from New Zealand, you know, oh, did it happen to people that look like me? No. Mm. Um, yeah. Happened to yeah. you know women but predominantly. That's, young it's women. also yeah. interesting um, because it, it raises this question of. It is an interesting question, mm. and that's why you need ethics. Yes, yes. Exactly. being an interesting question is that's a good starting point. Yeah. but it's a long way from the end of the exactly. process. Yeah, and exactly. look and look what's happened if you do the ethics properly and do the experiments properly. Oh, we have treatments now to prevent it, exactly. not just not just treat it, but prevent it. Exactly. Mm. And wow, hasn't that been effective? So, exactly. That's yeah. it. That's it. No, so big mm. shout out to anyone that ever feels like an ethics process takes a while, which it does for researchers. Yep. Mm. This is why we do it. You know, this is why it's so important. Yep. Great story, Dr. Lauren. Thanks so much for that. Good to see you in the studio. Pleasure. Chris KP, always good to see you too, Paul. Always good to be here. Folks, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We will chat to you again in just under seven days. Have a fantastic Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Go Go a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. 
Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Twitter account or Facebook page.